This is the Ignition Point, Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day Clayton Bradley Academy is dedicated to creating a student-centered positive environment that encourages problem-solving, collaborating, critical thinking, and helping students use life skills and lifelong guidelines. On today's podcast, we have Nicole Whitecotton. She currently teaches our eighth grade humanities classes, so that's English and history, and then integrating that with her team partner, uh, Dan DeMarcus, and he does the math and science side of those. And so welcome to the podcast, Nicole. Thank you. I'm very glad to be here. So I want to start just by introducing you to the audience that might be listening. So can you give a little background, a little bit of a background of uh, where you were before you came here and then how did you get to CBA and then uh, kind of different things that you've taught while you've been here and, and different things you've been a part of just to kind of give them a little bit of who you are. Sure. Uh, I graduated from Lee University as a non-traditional adult student in 2007. So uh, being a teacher came later in my life and I love it. Then I got my master's degree in 2013 from Lee University. Uh, my very first teaching job in 2007 was at um, a career academy in North Georgia where I wrote my own curriculum out of nice. the gate. I didn't have a textbook and I ran, um, I had a computer lab. So I was able to use old school, I don't know if you remember the, um, not Noodle, oh, maybe Noodle. There was an old program <laughs> that was like you had to write code and stuff. And oh, oh, nice. To go back to that now, it would, it would be such a <laughs> headache because we're so spoiled by our, by our suites that we have. But um, so yeah, so I wrote a social studies curriculum that was conceptually based, not realizing that it was all gonna lead up to here. Um, I failed miserably at a few things early on. Um, (laughs) But one thing that I always knew was that if the kids were accountable for a product, then they tended to have more buy-in. So we were, you know, designing brochures and creating um, hats. Whenever we were talking about the presidential roles, they had to actually make a physical hat, you know, that was like, these are the different hats the president wears. So everything about what I did from day one in education, even when I was confused and a newbie, um, has been with this kind of subconscious knowledge that the kids had to be able to link their learning to something that was tangible to them. So as we go through my career, as I went through my career, I found myself, and I talk with my hands a lot, I know, um, I found myself um, not being able to stay there because funding was cut for that school. It was an amazing school. Funding was cut for that school, which happens in education. Yep. And I ended up in a traditional high school, um, and I took on an AP course and thought I might die. An 11th grade <laughs> AP US history course that about killed me. Uh, I was at um, I was at that school, that high school. It was a very traditional old school, like think Greece, right? Like old school <laughs> high school in um, East Tennessee and near Chattanooga. And um, was there for two years and ended up leaving there because I wanted to move to the Knoxville area. Uh, My whole family's in Knoxville, the Knoxville area, and we all decided to kind of like, you know what, we're all going to settle together. So um, when I came here, I got a job at at, at a high school in North Knoxville, very good high school called Halls High School, and I was teaching um, 
different social studies courses, I actually was spread pretty thin. I was teaching four content areas. Oh, wow. And um, I was enjoying it. I loved the kids. I was having a good time, but I was spread so thin that it, it wasn't meaningful. And I had fallen back on, here's a textbook, here's reading, let's talk about it, take a test. Right. And it was very not fulfilling. Um, but that job was taken away from me. Um, you never know in education what's going to happen in jobs. Right, right. And so I, at the end of that year, I was told, mm, you're not coming back. And the funny thing is, is it's always, you're a great teacher. We love you. You just can't stay here. <laughs> so I was recommended by that principal yeah. for another position in Knox County. And I ended up at Whittle Springs Middle School. When I first started teaching, I said, I will never teach middle school. Never never you will not catch middle schoolers are of the devil i will not teach middle schoolers <laughs> and then i ended up in a sixth grade class in an inner city school that feeds into fulton high school and if you're from east tennessee there is there is something about the the beautiful nature of teaching kids that really need you yeah absolutely and um i fell in love with those sixth graders i fell in love with them and i my eyes were opened to some amazing truths and that is that middle school was for me yeah um doors open and close in weird ways and we know that and i do believe that god had his hand on my life and led me to that job because at the end of that year an opening came up at clayton bradley academy and i knew that i wanted to work at clayton bradley academy but i really felt felt like the chances were super slim we had a the clayton CBA had a tiny student body at the time, mm -hmm. and the need was really not there yet for upper school teachers and middle school as upper school teachers. So when that opening um, happened, I just went for it, and I got it, which was mind-boggling, mind-blowing, wonderful. Um, I just knew that this was for me. And then when you start, it's like drinking from a water hose. So that's where we're at now. I have now been at CBA. Um, this is my eighth, eighth year teaching at CBA. Um, and loving every minute of it. The first year, sixth grade. And then I have been in eighth grade humanities ever since. Right. You know, the pathway that we follow to get to where we are, uh, you know, is, is typically not the pathway that we would have written down for ourselves. Right. Uh, exactly. And so it's always exciting to, to hear that from somebody of, of kind of how did you get here and and realizing those little steps along the way, sometimes the one door opening that you go, well, that's not really what I would want to teach. But then realizing I really do enjoy teaching mm -hmm. that. And mm -hmm. it happens in, in uh, education all the time. Typically, it does happen with those middle school teachers. Uh, there's mm -hmm. not a ton of, ton of, of people in, in uh, education programs that you'll talk to that right. are like, I hope to teach middle school. Exactly. There are some, but it's not a lot of times the, the majority. And, and I think it's because there's that transition that happens in middle school that, that is tough to teach. You know, whenever you've got the, the brain being trimmed, the way that we know oh, the brain's goodness. being trimmed, the hormones that are being released, receptors that aren't even in the, the, the brain that the body's having to figure out where to put these receptors to, the more, to recognize them. Yeah, and the more that I know about the brain, the more I love them. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, the more I love them. Because you know what? They don't fall on the floor and kick and scream every day when really they want to. So like, 
that battle is half won because they have learned enough self-control to not get so frustrated with their inability to process because that's what's happening. Right. There are things they're just unable to process and they're able to maintain and make it through the day. Now, some of them I'm confident go home and cry, but <laughs> that's not my job. That's mom's job. So, <laughs> well, and, and it's understanding that, you know, what they may be saying of why they're frustrated right now or mm-hmm. why they're upset or yeah. why they're, you know, not feeling right mm-hmm. is, is connected to something that we know and understand connected to something related to how the brain works and what's going on in their development and understanding that that's appropriate. I think sometimes that gets confused in middle school of, of because they start to look like adults, we want to know why they don't act like, you know, and you go, well, you're old enough to act better or you should know right. better. And in reality, where their brain is, they are doing appropriate behavior. Yeah. Um, and they're, they're learning to interact with those peers, which take on a whole new level uh, in their life. Mm-hmm. The priority of peer interaction goes, goes way up yep. as they enter middle school. And so understanding that and then using that to your advantage. Mm-hmm. And, and some people as teachers and educators are really good at, at recognizing that, embracing it, loving it. Um, and I hear that over and over from our teachers at CBA that are in the middle school of, of I really love Mm-hmm. this stage of, mm-hmm. of development yeah. uh, and working with this stage of, of development. And you really want that. I mean, you yeah. want a teacher that recognizes that and loves that. People on the outside looking into middle school, man, <laughs> you know, you see a lot of things that you shake your head at or scratch your head or whatever may be the, the response. But it's recognizing that they are acting like middle schoolers. And, and sometimes that means they're acting like two-year-olds. Um, Indeed. And, and, and mm-hmm. sometimes it is the temper tantrum that you go, Really, you know, and <laughs> and and there are times, and I've noticed this in my own kids, where you know the the flood of emotions is happening, and you're like, "What's going on? Talk to me about that." And it really is a I don't know, or I I can't put into words why I'm experiencing this emotion right now, and that's okay. Like that, yeah, that's actually exactly what happens for that two and three year old. Of why do they throw those temper tantrums? It's the same thing. They don't have the words yet to put with right. it, and. What's going on inside that middle school brain a lot of times is the same thing. Like they, they, they don't understand the emotion yet enough to be able to put it into words yeah. to tell you why I'm upset. I'm just upset right now. Mm-hmm. And then they transfer that upset sometimes to other things. You know, well, I'm upset because the teacher said this or I'm upset because the student over here did X. And maybe they have a reason to be upset, but sometimes it's just they don't understand how to process it yet. Right. And whenever you are in tune with that, you know, the training at CBA helps us to understand adolescent brains. And we spend a lot of time talking about it and reminding each other, which I think is a huge deal because it, sometimes we get in our feels, we get in our own emotions and we get angry. And so reminding us each other and, you know, looking at a student and saying, hey, you need to fix this behavior. That student interprets it as I'm in trouble. Right. And so being able to look at a student, I have I have a new practice that I started last year and I look these kids in the eyes and I say, repeat after me, Miss White Cotton is not mad at me. And I make them say, Miss White Cotton's not mad at me. You, I am not in trouble. I am not in trouble. Okay, now let's talk about why you did that. And so by doing that, I'm hoping to get them out of their amygdala and to understand that all I'm doing is trying to restore the behavior that we need because they need a chance to bring it back into focus. Absolutely. It's not about being in trouble. Right. So sometimes they're in trouble, <laughs> but right. not most of the time. Most of the time I just want them to fix it and move on. Right. And that's that's a whole other part of our model too, that restorative practice model. 
Um, today, we really wanted to talk about um, conceptual learning, and, mm-hmm. and it's one of those, it's, it's tough to talk about one part of the model that we use in, mm-hmm. in our classroom because restorative practice is a major part of that. And in middle school, restorative practice is, is a super important part because mm-hmm. of that peer-to-peer interaction, yes. which we know when, when everything goes bad quickly sometimes. Um, so um, that's something that I know we will uh, bring up at a later date. But um, when we talk about conceptual learning, in, in a lot of education, educators are handed a textbook, they're handed a curriculum. Yes. Uh, many times they're handed a uh, scope and sequence and say, like, you know, by the end of October, you need to be, you know, through chapter four. And by the end of December, you need to be through chapter 10. And and there is some, I understand there is some reason for for that, especially in bigger schools. But one of the things we don't do here is hand you a curriculum and we don't hand you a textbook. We don't hand you a scoping and and sequence to say, you know, you have to have your kids through Mm -hmm chapter or whatever. We start with those standards. We start to understand what do the students need to master. In fact, that's a, a vocabulary that we work with our yes. teachers on of, of trying not to say that we cover material because I can teach something to you that you don't get. And then sometimes in education we go, oh, well, the student should have gotten it. I did all of this stuff as their teacher. And, in, and flipping that and saying, how can I teach in a way that the student really learns, that the goal is that they master the standard that we want them to, to master. Um, and it's not a matter of at the end of the year saying, check uh, the boxes that I covered all yeah. of these standards, but looking in, intently saying, what standards did my students learn and master, that being the focus and not as the teacher, I, I taught all of these things, they should know them. And so when you look at eighth grade, I know you uh, have kind of settled on a couple of conceptual Mm -hmm. ideas and that sort of thing that I think fits really great with eighth grade. But um, as you've worked for the past really seven years in eighth grade to develop this concept that you guys use, um, you've worked with a couple different teachers, teams, you've done it by yourself and then you've done it with others as well. And so how have you uh, developed that conceptually like how does that process work for you how did you land on the concepts that you use right now Um, just kind of talk through that whole process so um, my my education is in history so I think that I focused more on the content of what I teach with because eighth grade traditionally ha see what I did right anyway um, (laughs) we'll come back to that we'll come back to that Um, but the eighth grade um, across the state of Tennessee covers U.S. history. Now, way back, whenever I first started here, I was blessed enough to be able to be a part of the team that um, actually changed the linear standards to conceptual standards, which uh, they're called C3 standards, and they are amazing. Um, It gives you goals for critical thinking in different components like history, government, civics, you know, all of the economics. It gives you goals at each grade band level because not all seven-year-olds are the same. But between third and fifth grade, these things need to be pretty much mastered. They need to have these critical thinking skills in order to understand the concepts in middle school so when they get to us the goals are middle school appropriate in the c3 standards for critical thinking based on social studies type 
sub subjects. And I love that. Um, so I still do use US history and, and I do teach it linear, linearly. Wow, that one's easier <laughs> to type than it is to say. Right. So um, as I go through the linear history of, the U of US history, we talk about different things. Right now we are talking about why people move. Um, and this is a simple concept that starts in pre-K. And um, in my, in my um, grade band, by the end of eighth grade, they need to understand why people are compelled and then those critical thinking moments behind it. Um, and, and I'm just gonna tell you right now, my lesson at the beginning of this year, I have a great example of this. One of my students, I said, no one, no human is going to change their life unless something pushes them and or pulls them in a different direction. Mm. And I literally had a student raise her hand and say, um, I beg to differ on that, Miss White Cotton. I'm not even kidding. This is her precious little voice. She <laughs> says, I actually do like change sometimes. And I went, okay you might choose a different color headband, but when it comes to your structure of your daily life, you will subconsciously choose the thing that's most comfortable most often. I don't think so. I think I try new things all the time. Now this is in front of the whole class and my heart is just exploding with joy because I have this wonderful teaching moment because I looked her in the face and I said, where have you sat every day <laughs> with no seating chart? Right. And who has sat with you every day in this class? And the look on her face. And she, she really wanted to challenge me back, but she couldn't. And I said, also, you will find that you are going to choose to go in the most comfortable direction unless that place is stopped. The easiest path is the path you know. And the only thing that is going to stop a human from doing that is if something makes them do something different. Mm. And so these push-pull factors are very important to these students, especially since in my year-long theme, my conceptual learning is tradition. And in first quarter, we talk about good traditions, bad traditions, ugly traditions, and where they come from. and what makes them valid because then in quarter two we talk about value and where we get our values and then in quarter three we talk about fate which basically i that's the concept is fate but then we boil it down to am i in control or do things just happen mm. and then in fourth quarter we talk about legacy and we talk about people who left a legacy but what do we do for the future. How do we create traditions for our future, for our legacy, for our posterity? And, it, and, and part of that is that those kids are now going to high school. And I really play up the maturity factor in that they have choices that will help them mature. Yes, maturity will happen naturally, but they can start making choices that will make them better humans and also make their lives better. And leaving that legacy behind can be a conscious choice or they can just be willy-nilly about their decisions 
and not care about the legacy they leave behind. And I have them write a letter to themselves that they will open on graduation night from high school. So the goals that they want to set for themselves for the future. So all of that really can be brought down to tradition. And we talk about um, that tradition comes out of religious beliefs. It comes out of family experiences. It comes out of historical experiences. And ultimately, people will practice traditions without even understanding why they do it. Right, right. You know, and you think about that with how many things as an adult that you still do and, and why you do those things. And, and I think there's probably a lot of adults that might be even listening to this that would say, oh, I love change or, oh, you know, change happens all the time. I just embrace it. And, but it really is one of those of we typically still tend to do what's mm-hmm. most comfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a, an easy example of that is in our lives, how many of us knowing that exercise is what we should do. Yes actually make the change in our lifestyle to participate in exercise, mm-hmm. you know, or to change an, an eating habit that maybe we realize this is not right or, you know, some other habit that we've allowed to develop in our life. And that's the easy thing to go back to. And, and, and when stress happens and, and the world starts to, to get very difficult, what do we do? We go back to that default mm-hmm. mode. We go back to that thing that was, that was easiest or, or most comfortable um, and we don't choose change a lot of times. And, and historically, uh, you know, I bet when we're looking at who we think of as, as great leaders or people that founded and blazed trails and, and that sort of thing, those were people that did embrace change mm-hmm. and, and had to be willing to say, oh, yes, I'm going to go over this mountain and we're going to find out what's there. But, I, but the thing about American history that is so wonderful for that is yeah they went over the mountain why did they go over the mountain because they were miserable on this side of the mountain Mm. and the only reason that they wanted to go over the mountain is because something was pulling them to freedom and and so those push pull factors exist but we don't like to acknowledge them sometimes and i think by opening the kids eyes to the fact that the colonists that came to america were miserable when they first got here. It was not fun. There, there's nothing fun about those first <laughs> 20 or 30 years in America. Yeah. And yet they came. What on earth possessed them to do that? How often do you have an eighth grader thinking about the motives of the colonists? It changes the entire perspective of who we are as a nation when you look at the motives of the colonists. It is a huge deal to think about the traditions that they developed and the traditions they paired away, and then also look at why some of the traditions we have today maybe need to be reevaluated because some of those came out of necessity and they're no longer appropriate. Mm. Um, you know, just without giving the kids answers, right. but making them internally own that. And we talk about their family traditions and why they do it. It's so funny. I, my family has a tradition that when we do a certain trail on a bike, we're going to stop at this big rock on the trail, <laughs> right? And we are going to climb it and maybe even eat lunch on it. And one of my students in class said, oh, we have a resting rock in Knoxville on a trail that we take. The whole family always rests on it when we go walking on the trail. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that is so great that we have the same tradition. Yeah. But it's two different, there's two different sources. Right. This has been the Ignition Point. 
Clayton Bradley Academy's podcast, where every day we're dedicated to creating a student-centered environment that encourages problem-solving, collaboration, critical thinking, and using of our lifelong guidelines and life skills. If you'd like to find out more about Clayton Bradley Academy, you can visit us on the website, claytonbradleyacademy.org, or through our social media accounts, Clayton Bradley Academy and Clayton Bradley STEM. If you would like to schedule a visit, come out and see it for yourself of what we do, we'd love to have you. We hope you have a great day.